0: Hi, everybody, and welcome to Surfacing the Meaning in the Story, a podcast produced by the Mental Health Association of Westchester. I'm Jenna. And I'm Dustin. And we are here today with a uh, special episode that is not technically a podcast, but that we're releasing as a podcast. So how are you doing today, Dustin, before we tell them more about it? Doing pretty good. Uh, I got a little uh, surprised when you talk about this week's guest. So I think it'll be a a fun thing to tie back into the the podcast episode. Okay. Okay. So we're going to circle back to that. So um, (laughs) our guest today is Melissa Bernstein, who is one of the founders of Melissa and Doug Toys. It's a toy company that she founded with her husband, Doug. And so Melissa came and did a community conversation for MHA back in September on the 22nd, and she agreed to let us air it as a special podcast episode so that more people could hear it. And we do have the video as well, which is on YouTube, and you can find that on our website, which is www.mhawestchester.org. If you go to our media library, you'll be able to see all of our past community conversations and podcasts and articles and all kinds of stuff there. So if you want to actually see the video, she has a really cool background.
1: She <laughs> does. I know,
0: <laughs> yeah. I know for some people, it's a little bit harder to get to YouTube and maybe listen to a podcast on the drive. So we wanted everyone to have an opportunity to hear what she's going to share. So Dustin. Tell me, what's your connection? <laughs> I got my first Melissa and Doug toy a oh, week after the
1: best. <laughs> a, a
0: week after the, the recording, the, the community conversation, I got it from someone at MHA. Oh, funny! I opened it and I freaked out. I'm like, "Oh my god, this is exactly who we just had on, and this is who's going to be on the podcast episode." So, I <laughs> which it was, one um, was it? Which toy? Oh, it's a puzzle of some sort. Um, okay. Yeah, a, a good problem to have. We've gotten a lot of toys. Uh, so, oh my goodness, but yeah. That was the first one. I'm sure there's more, but that was the first one I noticed and ran oh, over even... and showed Allie, so I was pretty excited about it. I know, all of our favorite toys, um, you know, of the kids when they were little. And even now, they still play with the ones that they st- hold on to that are from they're kind of more babyish days. They're all Melissa and Doug. (laughs) They love them. They do. That's awesome. They have a lot of really cute things and yeah, definitely puzzles and make believe. What I like about them is they're all about um, make believe and allow the kids to really kids to really use their imagination. So So, excited, excited for Lily to be able to uh, use that when the time comes. Yeah. And it's such an important reminder that Melissa gives us that, you know, we talk about, People who have all this uh, fame and success, and you know, you would never realize that they have the same kind of struggles. And it's so important for us to give those reminders of the fact that it's not about where you are in your life or what you're doing or what's going on. All of that external stuff that anybody is really susceptible to anxiety, to depression. It can really impact anyone, no matter no matter what. So, absolutely, yeah, it's a good yeah. reminder for us all. I know. I just appreciate that she's willing to share it. And then a bit about the practices that she's used to really help manage that and and make the most of it. So what do you say? Let's get into it.
1: Uh, Melissa Bernstein, along with her husband, Doug, is the co-founder of the toy company Melissa and Doug, which has created over 5,000 children's products and sold billions of dollars of toys since its inception. Uh, Melissa was raised by educators and Melissa and Doug started their business in a garage in uh, Westport, Connecticut in 1988. And they've been on a mission ever since to provide open-ended, inventive non-technology playthings for young children, which I really appreciate with my granddaughter. Throughout Melissa's remarkable career, she's created a daily practice which has enabled her to stay steadfast and balanced in the face of life's ups and downs. In 2020, Melissa launched Lifelines, an online uh, community and self-help area filled with content, tools, and products to share her learnings and her practice in order to help as many people as possible. Melissa lives in Westport uh, with Doug and their six children. This past spring I was watching CBS Sunday morning and there was a story uh, with Melissa and her husband Doug. Here was this amazingly successful businesswoman and a mother of six sharing her story of living her whole life with existential de- depression. After the show I sent an email to her to tell her how impressed I was that what she was doing is so important for people to hear um, about the struggles people go with and, and get through and and how to you know find ways to, to do that and find uh, contentment. I was shocked when she wrote back personally and we connected. She's written a beautiful book Lifelines and she's here to share her story and life lessons with us. Please join me in welcoming Melissa.
2: Hi everyone. I'm so. Honored to be here with you tonight. And thank you so much for taking an hour out of your night to to join me. I wish I could be with you in person, but I I feel your warmth over Zoom, as challenging as that is. So I just want to start by saying any question goes. So we're going to leave half of this to questions. So please ask anything that's on your mind. I love questions I haven't been asked before. Uh, and I love difficult questions. So, so please, um, anything you think of that you'd like to ask me, feel free. That is uh, you know, what we're here to do tonight, right? We're here to share experiences and me to share sort of what has worked for me. You know, whether it'll work for you, I don't know, but I'm hoping that maybe something I say tonight will resonate with you. So we're talking tonight about the power of anxiety. Um, and <laughs> gosh, for me, Anxiety has probably been my closest friend ever since I can remember. Uh, You know, it's, and it hasn't been my friend for all those years, actually. Um, But it's been with me since my very earliest recollection. And I now know, I didn't know it at the time, but I was born with something called existential angst, which actually angst is anguish, which is even deeper than anxiety. I anguish is anxiety on a soul level. And I was born from age two asking these deep life questions. You know, why am I here? What is the meaning of life if we are ultimately just going to expire? And what am I meant to do during my brief time here? And because I couldn't get great answers to those questions, in fact, quite the opposite, when I maybe voiced even some semblance of them, people looked at me in horror, you know, and said things like, you're a child, like, these aren't things you're supposed to be thinking about, like, go out and play. I felt this tremendous sense of anguish, this sense of anxiety, because I didn't know why I was doing what I'm doing. I didn't know why I felt so different. I didn't know why everyone else around me seemed to be so carefree when I was so careful. And I didn't know if anything I would do in life would ever make a difference. And that filled me with constant and incessant anxiety. Additionally, and again, I realized this later on, I was born with what are called overexcitabilities. You might've heard about the HSP, the highly sensitive person. Well, overexcitabilities are a highly sensitive person on steroids because they're in five areas. They're intellectual, they're imaginational, they're emotional, they're sensual, your your senses, and they're psychomotor. They're actually a heightened arousal of your your motor, your, your central nervous system motor. And I happen to have this sensitivity in all five of them. So additionally, because everything was like on overload, I think about it as if you had an amplifier, and maybe these are old fashioned, but I think about those old fashioned amplifiers that have all those knobs and they're all at different levels. Well, it's like, if you took mine and you just went zoop and you took every knob and you just right, you know, rose it all the way to the top, that was how I lived each and every day. It was like, and I wrote a verse about it when I was very young, which was, please turn off the noise. I've lost track of the joys. I can't hear anymore with this deafening roar. I can't see anymore with this staggering light. I can't breathe anymore with this stifling fright. And it was like, everything was just overwhelming. And basically, I got a lot of your too. You know, from the time I was little, people looked at me like something was really wrong with me. You know, you're too emotional, you're too reactive, you're too irritable, you're too weird, you're too sensitive. I mean, you're to every single thing. And because this was just the way I was and the way I was just naturally reacting, when you display who you are and you're told, right, that's not good enough, you need to be someone else, it leads to tremendous anxiety, right? Because here I am, this is what I am. Nobody seems to accept me as who I am. So then I must try to be something else. And that space between who I actually was and who I believed then I needed to be, which was someone who didn't have these hypersensitivities, who didn't have this existential angst, someone who was perfect societally, right, that meant someone who smiled all the time, looked perfect, acted perfect, pleased others, performed really well, that gap became tremendous anxiety. Because I was always trying to be someone I wasn't. And when you strive for something that isn't possible, it can only create anxiety. So. What happened is because I knew I wouldn't be accepted as who I was, which was this highly sensitive, overly reactive, existentially depressed person at age like three and up, I knew I needed to receive validation somehow because we all need validation and I certainly wasn't going to get it as I was. So I really learned to exist with certain coping mechanisms. What were they? I anchored to a few, which I think some of you hopefully can relate to. Um, The biggest one was perfectionism. I was able to perform, you know, academically. I was always, or at least early on, I would say, I was able to, right, get the gold stars, get the 100%, get the, good girl, Melissa. Wow, you're like doing great. And I fed on that. Any perfectionist out there knows it feels it's a drug. When you're getting those A pluses and racking them up, it feels really good. You're being validated. But it's an external validation. And as we know, you know, external validations ultimately don't fill an inner dearth. So uh, perfectionism, also pleasing. You know, one of my other really early coping mechanisms was I'm going to be the good girl. I'm going to serve everyone, I'm going to please everyone, I'm never going to cause like a ripple in the water, and I'm just going to be like the person people always turn to. And those became my coping mechanisms. But of course, ultimately, only led me to more anxiety. Because we all know, humans are beautifully imperfect. And you can't, always get hundred percent, even though I did until almost the end of college. But when I started to fail, which by the way, for me, failure was getting an A minus or not being able to complete a paper on time, which sounds funny, but I actually had a nervous breakdown in college because I got less than a hundred percent. That was how, uh, how difficult it was for me to entertain failure. It, it meant I was worthless because everything I had built was on this sort of this perfect exterior. Even creativity, interestingly, in my early days, led to anxiety. And you know, it turns out that the qualities I have are highly common in creative people. You know, this idea of imaginational overexcitability and being able to imagine anything in that boundless expanse. Um, is very natural for me and leads me to be able to envision really cool things, Um, but of course it has the other side of it too, right? When you um, can imagine anything that's the best, you can also imagine really catastrophic dire things, but creativity in my early days was always a channel. You know, I had such profound despair and such a need to make sense of the senseless and these big, abstruse sort of complex ideas that nobody could answer for me, that I always channeled that into asking questions, trying to distill these big questions into simple creations. The unfortunate thing, though, throughout my early years, is everything I created was really despairing and really dark. You know, I wrote music from the toddler, two and three, and I wrote these verses sort of in my head from a very, very early age but they were really dark because everything I was thinking was so dark and despairing. So I somehow knew even from that early age that I couldn't share them with anyone because I was already being stigmatized for the way I acted and reacted. And I knew if I shared these dark verses that talked about the futility of life and these compositions that were so somber that after I I wrote them and played them once, I was like, oh my gosh, they even made me feel so despairing. I was like, I have to hide this stuff. I can't let anyone ever see it. And for literally most of my life, until I wrote my book and middle age, no one ever saw a shred of anything I created, at least the verses and the music, because I felt that it was darkness. So when the thing you're channeling doesn't lead you to meaning because it doesn't connect with anyone and it's just hidden in a dark closet where it doesn't see the light and just collects dust, I never found meaning through even my creativity, which again, led me to anxiety, right? It's this sense of why, what, how. So, you know, when I think about anxiety, because um, I will never be free of anxiety, I have existential anxiety, which by the way, is not a pathological well, I can't even say a pathological condition. It is a philosophical, spiritual condition. So it's that deep that it can't be solved, unfortunately, with, you know, simple, simple medical means. It has to literally follow a path of spirituality and philosophy. So it's it's not like a quick fix. Um, but, you know, I I realized that all those years that i lived in that existential angst and the overexcitabilities and imprisoned sort of in that that state i was in my head and you know i even when i was young i talked all the time about needing to get out of my head you know that my head was a prison that my head was taking me down and i even as a young child i talked about How could I get the space between my head and my heart? And I realized that for those years, that when the anxiety was at its worst, I was living entirely in my head. I was in a tiny little box that I was terrified of leaving. I was terrified of all the unknowns. I was terrified of failing or falling short of perfection. And I was terrified of the demons that told me if I left that little box, they would take me down. And those were my very worst days. I found no intoxication and no joy in that prison, and those four walls were literally suffocating me. I knew, I knew that just 14 inches below, and I I write a lot of verses about this, you know, lived my heart. And I knew that my heart was pure self-expression. My heart was liberation. And I yearned to be in my heart and just create freely with no walls. And I knew that those moments that I was able to get free of those bars, which were few and far between, ah, it was utter intoxication. I just couldn't seem to do it. And there was no way out because my mind stories were so deeply rooted. One, there's no meaning to life. Two. I can't trust anyone. They will betray me. Three, I'll always be alone. Four, I must be perfect. and cannot fall short. Uh, Five, I have to make everyone around me happy or I can't be happy. And these mind stories, there are many, many more, were so rigid that I couldn't win no matter what I did. When I finally wrote down these mind stories and read them to myself, I said, wow, no wonder you were in such a dark place for so many years. Like, you gave yourself no way out. You were in a prison without sustenance. Uh, So I believed I was in bondage. So I was in bondage. And I think that's a really interesting lesson. You know, the door was actually always open, but I certainly didn't believe it. It was only by accident when I met Doug at 19. Uh, which is pretty crazy. I've known him for a really long time. Um, and we, by accident, you know, started a toy company, Melissa and Doug, because, you know, I, we had never studied making toys. We had never, I'd never taken a design course in my life. You know, it wasn't like we were destined to make toys. I mean, we love children more than anything and we love open-ended play. Um, but it was only then that i discovered something incredibly profound so and i'll I'll give you an analogy that um, really is is very meaningful to me so as i told you you know my whole life i created right and but one of my my beliefs about myself was i was dark i was only darkness and i truly believed like i was an ugly dark person really in my soul you know i gave this impression that i wasn't but inside because what channeled out of me was pure darkness. And I truly believed that if anyone knew the real me, they would never accept me, right? Because any inkling I showed of it, people were like horrified, like the look of like, oh my gosh, like something is really <laughs> seriously wrong with this little girl. Um, so I had to hide myself, my real self from the world. But when by accident, you know, we I started, making toys, and I saw our very first line of puzzles very clearly in my head, like perfectly finished, I realized something incredibly profound, that my whole life, basically, if, if creativity is, or, or I should say, Melissa is a water faucet, and one side of it is light, and one side is dark, I had just, in effect, turned off the, the light faucet the first half of my life. Right? I was creating, but I was only channeling all that angst, all that anxiety and depression into more darkness that stayed in the dark and never touched anyone. And I thought that was all I could do. But when I saw that I could take that very same anxiety that could create all that darkness extremely easily and still can on a moment's notice, But I could choose actually to turn off the dark faucet, turn on the light faucet, and instead channel it into toys, which is maybe the biggest irony of my life, right? Here you've got someone with existential nihilism, which is the deepest, darkest form of despair. You believe that the world has no meaning, existence has no meaning, and we as humans have no ability to make meaning in a meaningless existence. And here, this deep, dark person is making toys, like the lightest, brightest, frivolous, you know, products ever that they can hand to a child, no less, and have the ability to spark and unleash their imagination. Like what could be more incredible? And when I saw that I could actually take this very same anxiety and channel it into these light, bright toys, it was uh, mind-blowing. I guess that's the only word I can use. I couldn't even believe it. Because here I believed I was cursed, right? My whole life I was just cursed and, and doomed. And suddenly I saw there was a blessing and a potential meaning to come out of this curse. And actually I had a blurs. A blessing and a curse all in one. And it really felt for me like a breathing tube had been inserted into my trachea for the first time. Like I truly felt that I had been suffocating and suddenly that I could find meaning from this lifetime of anxiety and anguish. So that became then my life mantra. My mantra became step on out of the head, moving into the heart free to channel all dread into jubilant art. And it truly became this act every single day to choose to make meaning out of my anxiety, to choose to stare it in the eye, find it wherever it resided in my body, rest it into a force, and channel it into light through my arm into products. And that is what i did for 32 years but the truth is after 30 years something was still missing because if you remember i had turned off the dark faucet and turned on the light faucet and that was what ran for 32 years and i showed this shiny bright melissa who was you know had this toy company and had these six children and you know, really showed this sort of facade to the world. I was finding salvation through the creative process, don't get me wrong, it gave my life meaning and brought me, you know, profound joy. Um, But I knew in my heart and that voice, that soul voice started to get louder and louder and louder. And it was saying, see me, you're not all light. You know, you are, you have the dark faucet too. And in fact, Almost all that creativity is channeled from darkness, not light. It's turning into light, but there's a lot of darkness in there. And I longed to be seen as true, as who I truly was, and finally accepted as who I was. And, you know, I didn't look for that. I wasn't, but for some reason, it was like it started eating away at me. That desire to be seen authentically and to turn on the dark faucet as well and say to folks, guess what, this is who I am, right? I'm a, I'm a entire running faucet of dark and light and all of it mixed together. So I actually, in one crazy bold move, decided to bear my truth on one of my favorite podcasts. It was a podcast I listened to and it had all my favorite people. Oh my gosh, it had Brene Brown and it has Liz Gilbert and like all these Glennon and Doyle. And for some reason, I had this sense that the folks on this particular podcast, the, the listeners, would would understand my story. And in this act of mania, because I don't speak, like I create. And uh, for those of you who are creatives, like we don't speak through our mouths. We create through our, our hands. And I never talked about myself. I never tooted my own horn. I never... I never talked about anything, I just created. And I always said to myself, I'm gonna let my, my creation speak for me. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll show people who I am. So this idea of going on this public platform with millions of listeners and like bearing this, this truth, because it was such a revelation to me to realize that we all have the capacity to channel our darkness into light and make meaning. And I had been so close to ending my life, like carrying around a bottle of pills in my pocket for a year, you know, this close to taking them. And the fact that I could go from that to actually finding this profound joy and meaning um, was almost inconceivable. So I needed to share it. And I, I had this sense that there were so many others who were entrenched in darkness and didn't know how to wrest meaning and light out of it and hadn't found a way to harness their anxiety, right? To, to make meaning out of it. So, and and by the way, I also learned that anxiety is simply a sign that we are being inauthentic in our souls. You know, anxiety is when you butt up against, I don't like where I am, and I need to go somewhere that's gonna take a lot of courage. It's fear it's fear of stepping into our own shoes. And I, cause I don't feel that I still have anxiety, but I don't feel that level of anxiety anymore because I'm in my own shoes. So when we feel anxiety, you know, that our, our Western culture wants to pathologize it right away and get rid of it. You know, it's like, oh, anxiety, let's get rid of it. It's a, you know, it's like anxiety equals bad. Um, no, anxiety is your body telling you something. And generally, it's telling you like, I'm living an inauthentic life. I wanna lead an authentic life. How do I get there? So, you know, I view anxiety as, if you want to use another metaphor, cause I love metaphors, you know, you have two cliffs. One of them on the left is inauthenticity and you come up to the edge of it and you look over and it drops completely off and you look down into the abyss and you don't see anything. But you see, if you look right at, across, you see the uh, next cliff, which is authenticity. And it's there, but the only way you get there is to dive into the abyss. And the abyss is anxiety. The abyss is facing all your fears of confronting who you are, of radical you know, acceptance, of dispelling all the societal myths, of maybe making others displeased with you in your life if you're going to do something that is against the the grain. I mean, it's all the things we fear most. And if you have the courage to jump into that anxiety, and it it took a trained professional for me, you know, I, I didn't just like, eh, I'm just going to jump into that anxiety and face my existential nihilism. No, I needed help. And I had five years, I still am with her, of therapy to get me to face my anxiety at its core. So I'm not saying it's easy. It was the most arduous journey of my life. But I'm in authenticity now, and boy, it's not blissful every day, but it feels really comfortable. I'm finally walking in my my own shoes. So um, I went on the podcast, ultimately. I I wrote him a blind letter like, hi, Um, went on the podcast, and something really profound happened. You know, I shared my truth completely authentically, without any fanfare, And I ended up receiving hundreds and hundreds of letters of people saying, oh my gosh, you are me. You are speaking my words. You are sharing my story. You're the first one who's given words to my story. I've never knew anyone was like me. And again, you know, anxiety and depression lead us a lot of times to isolating ourselves, right? And feeling this, this sense of Aloneness. No one will ever understand us. We're alone. You know, many folks who have existential despair say, I feel like I was dropped here from another planet that I'm an alien that no one will ever understand me. You know, those were my mind stories like I don't belong here. I'm like one of one of a kind in a a bad way, (laughs) like not a not a good way. Um, And I suddenly after going on this podcast realized that isn't the case at all. Actually, there are thousands of people. Just like me. And that was like, again, another mind blowing, staggering realization to be middle aged and say, Are you kidding me? Here I thought like no one would ever understand me. And like thousands of people are saying, eh, Me too, me too, me too. It was like almost mind blowing. And that really became then, I knew that was my life mission. The minute I got those letters, I said, You know what? I shouldn't say my life, my second life mission, um, because uh, you know I've made toys for over three decades. It's been so profoundly joyful. I love it. But I've never helped someone go from inauthenticity to authenticity through a toy, you know? And here, all these folks are saying to me, Melissa, I get it. I feel exactly what, what you're feeling. Unfortunately, you found your light. I'm still in darkness, help. And I knew, you know, I can't, wear them on my carry them on my back over the abyss unfortunately only you can do that but i can shine my light on them and i can share my story and i can certainly share the strategies that have worked for me so the last thing before questions the other thing once i made that deep arduous journey i jumped into the abyss right i climbed up on the other side of authenticity it took me four plus years to make the first journey. And the journey just spirals upward. It never really ends. Don't let anyone tell you it does. Um, Then I realized something also that's really profound. So, you know, I finally accepted myself with both water faucets, right? I realized that I'm not just light. I'm not just dark either. I'm actually both. I'm actually a full spectrum of emotion and a beautiful spectrum from the highest of highs to the existential nihilism that is the lowest of lows. And I can harness all of it to create, and I can accept all of it because it's part of me. And when I didn't accept all of it, it was anxiety, right? I was denying who I was and denying what I felt. And that led to anxiety and deep depression. When I finally said, this is who you are, you're blessed, you got a blessing, you also got a curse, it's who you are, accept it, um, it it's like the, the despair almost completely lifted. However, being highly overexcitable means that being Melissa is really like being on a roller coaster. You know, some days are really high and I'm in the boundless expanse of imagination floating off and it's really hard to get me down and I can float off into the upper abyss and never come back. In fact, I really don't like to come back when I'm up there, it's so beautiful. Um, Or I can go really low, usually after I go really high for about a week, I can go really low and fall into that abyss of darkness and also threaten to never come up. So what was I going to do, right? I accepted it now, you can go really high, you can go really low, but what did that mean? What did that mean for my life? Like I was at risk of getting lost in either one of those. So I realized that for me to be here in the present, living my life and unlocking my full potential and being my best self, I needed something to ground me in my life here and center me and bring me back home whenever I started to go too high or too low. And that became a practice, which is now sort of my, my, life, uh, my life work. You know, it's called I've called it Practice Makes Purpose. And it's actually my practice to remain here day in and day out. And it includes five E's, I call it living life with E's, E-A-S-E and E apostrophe S because they're all the letter E and I love like double meanings. Um, And it's really sort of five compartments because I think of it as sort of like, I wake up each day, right? I open my eyes. And I'm like, okay, what's today going to be like? Is it a really going up the roller coaster or are you going down? And before I even step out of bed, I strap on my practice. It's like a backpack and it has all my compartments in it and it's my tools. It's basically my tools and it's my lifelines so I can stay afloat each day. And I won't go into it in detail, but it basically exists of five areas, energy, How do I fill my well of energy so I can be vital and really be my best self? How do I, the second one is equanimity, which is the hardest thing. How do I ground myself and engage in the practice of stopping, coming back home and becoming equanimous, which means remaining detached from everything going on so I can respond, not react out of my ego. The third section is um, empathy how do I develop empathy toward myself, which was the hardest thing for me to do? How can I truly step into my own shoes and accept myself exactly as I am? And in doing so, how do I depersonalize my relationships and how do I develop empathy for others? Then is essence, how do I every single day say, Melissa, who are you? Why are you here? What is your innate seeds of self-expression that you wish to manifest to the world. And how are you gonna do that today? And I have to keep asking that question because it keeps changing, actually. I mean, my innate essence isn't changing, but how I wanna manifest it changes. And then the last E is engage, engagement. How do I want to engage my beautiful seeds of self-expression, which are all of us have this gift inside us. What do we wanna do with our gift? How do we want to connect it to the world. And then in doing so, the last piece, which is one of the most important, is how do I engage with others in meaningful, authentic relationships? So I can truly feel that sense of communion that we all long for. And you know, it's in the order of the way they need to follow because the truth is, until we really know who we are and discover what makes us tick and and figure out how we wanna manifest that in the world, we, can't, we really can't engage in authentic relationships because they would be inauthentic and they wouldn't fill our soul because we wouldn't even know who we were. So that's why sort of it's taken me so long to forge these authentic relationships. And I really am doing it for the first time now because uh, I didn't know who I was until you know fairly recently. So I'm sorry, that is long-winded, but I'd be utterly thrilled to answer any questions or hear your comments. What, whatever you'd
1: like. Thanks so much, Melissa. That was great. Um, your story is always just really amazing and so relatable in so many different ways. I think you know each of us recognizes parts of that um, in ourselves. One of the things um, I was wondering if you could share a few thoughts on, although you had personality that way, um, you were born that way, what could others have done to Um, kind of help you to adapt earlier and find, you know, find a way to self-accept earlier? What could they have done and not done? I think that's often the case.
2: That's an amazing question. And, you know, I just finished my second book and it's all about that. It's how to deal with folks who have overexcitabilities because my, my story, that's what I wanted desperately through my whole life. And I think it's just the stigmatization, you know, and I feel like when I'm speaking, I'm speaking for so many highly creative people, because to be highly creative, you know, in the creativity that you see the things in your head, you have to have these overexcitabilities. Like, it, it's hand in hand, you're, you're holding, so those of us who are at that creative level are going to be weird by societal standards, like we're going to think really, different we're going to be different, I should say, we're going to be odd in the conventional sense. And everyone wants what we create, right? They desperately want new toys, but they don't accept the person who created them. And I always found that like very unfair. And I've written a lot of verses about it, you know, like, like, why shouldn't we be heralded as exactly who we are? And I think that's what we need. We need people that when we say things that seem like, whoa, that's weird, or that's a weird idea, or that can't be done, to to open up our minds to accepting that these might be the inventors of tomorrow that are saying these things. And when you snuff out their dreams or make them feel that, that something's weird, all they're going to do is go into themselves. They're already going to be introverts. I mean, those of us who are creative also are by definition introverts because we, we live in our imagination. So when you do something that makes us feel like, uh-oh, they don't like me, it's just going to put us more in our, in our heads, which is a very dangerous place to be because that imagination, you know, that takes us to intoxicating highs also takes us to really dark lows. I hope that answered it. I think it's just yeah. empathy and compassion and openness to hearing whatever we have to say and accepting it and saying, "Wow, I never thought about it that way. That's really cool."
1: But hearing adults talk like this helps us to begin to learn to accept children more. I think, you know, so often we we move them in ways that are, you know, smile, always smile, always be, you know, good that way and you know, it, especially for those who are sensitive, it has a, a difficult effect on them.
2: Yeah, yeah, I I think that's, I think that makes complete sense.
0: I had a very similar question in the chat as well, uh, maybe a little bit more personal, but you said we could ask anything, so. Yes, of course. Um, someone asked, when you were a child and really in elementary school, what was one of the most helpful responses that you received to your hypersensitivity or reactions in a situation?
2: I think the most helpful response can be, I know, and and I I have felt the same way, and I know what you're feeling. I, I understand exactly what you're feeling and don't, you know. It, it, you can feel communion in that. It's someone just sharing an experience when they felt similarly. I wanted to know that I wasn't alone in feeling this way. That's all I wanted to know. And no one ever, it was the opposite. Like people always said, what is wrong with you? Why are you? So it was the opposite reaction to, and because I wanted to be accepted, I very quickly learned to just repress and deny and disassociate from everything I was feeling. So I think that's how I got by, you know, others have, have other ways. And, you know, someone also asked about anxiety, and I love that. I think there are definitely different types of anxiety. There's obviously generalized anxiety where you just, you know, you, you feel anxious about everything. It might not be your inauthentic self. It might be exactly who you are you know, there, there's all types of anxiety, my anxiety was existential. And it was more related to these deep questions that once I answered a lot of that anxiety lifted. So I do think there is um, pathological anxiety too, that, uh, that literally is part of who we are, it has nothing to do with authenticity. And that would be an anxiety that would be more, you know, needed to be treated by By a professional. And I think, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy or DBT strategies to, you know, confront your anxieties and learn to um, accept them and exist with them and challenge yourself to maybe confront some of the fears so you can move past some of them.
1: Great. I think another question was. You know, how can people overcome the shame that keeps us from sharing our truths and authentic selves?
2: It's a great question. And I think, you know, I think you have to reach that point where the desire for meaningful connection exceeds the fear that you might be rejected, which is why most of us don't do it till middle age. Uh, For me, by the time I did it, I didn't care at all anymore. And trust me, I cared so much my whole life. That's all I felt was shame. But when I finally got up the courage to do it, it was like, I don't care who hears it. And I have to be honest, I mean, maybe you can believe it for me. The reason I'm doing this is because I want others to do it decades earlier. And when I came out, it was like, not only did I lose the shame, I got so much compassion and empathy from others. I got everything I had ever been looking for. The shame actually gave me a wall that made no one able to relate to me and give me what I really needed, which was that empathy and compassion. So if you can have the courage to share it, I think you'll find that you'll have many more people relate to it and many more people who you never imagined. I mean, people come up to me all the time. You know, the so-called perfect people come up to me every day and are like, can I share something with you? And it's always the same thing. We're all human. We all have ups and downs. We all have people in our lives who are suffering. And once we can share it, it it just feels so, so reassuring, I would say. So I, I, I know it seems counter, but the only way you overcome it is to share it. Just do it. You know, it's easy to say. And for me, it was just like, I was finally like, I'm not gonna die never having shown who I truly am and without a, an authentic friend. I mean, I was you know, 50 years old and hadn't had an authentic friendship my whole life because I was this phony person who never shared anything about herself. So um, I can tell you now that I wish I had done it 30 years sooner, you know? And um, that's why I'm trying to tell people, have the courage to do it because good things will happen. You'll, you'll find the, the kinship and the, the communion you've been looking for.
1: But I think with that, I think the the question of the self-acceptance versus the, you know, acceptance from others, the more you self-accept, the more, you know, you are accepted and teaching that young, how do we teach that?
2: I think it's more examples like in, in the U.S., unfortunately, you know, our role models are all unattainable. You know, we, we don't, We don't have real people come in our classrooms and say, this is what it's like to be, you know, uh, a UPS driver. This is what it's like. These are what people in our society are doing and having meaningful lives. And, you know, you, you don't need to have this these aspirations that you can never hit. And because of it never hitting them, you always feel inadequate. And we we are left with this pursuit of happiness. That means achieving this American ideal that nobody can ever achieve. So we're all left, everyone, I've talked, I've spoken with Olympic athletes, I've spoken with supermodels, everybody feels inadequate. There is not one person in Western society who feels fulfilled because we're always striving for something externally that we can never attain. So I think, you know, unfortunately, could we do a better job throughout school? Of course. I mean, if we did a better job not talking about, you know, these. These ideals that you're trying to get outside yourself and, and the spiritual path or the the you know the the authentic path, different pathways people take, you know, that college isn't for everyone, that you don't have to get a 4.0. I mean, all these things unfortunately we we don't we don't talk about. And it leads to a lot of anxiety because that path is isn't right for most people. So I think when you're forced out a path that isn't right for you, that's going to lead to anxiety and a lot of pressure right there. So I think we want to give more examples of those who've traveled different paths and have found tremendous fulfillment in doing so. And then I think people could say, wait, that is a path I could take. And it's a pretty cool path. Great. I think one of the
0: things you said that was so helpful too is about the, that the dark and the light can coexist together and really authentically do that so that it's not just that toxic positivity, right? You have to see the bright side. You have to look at the positive of this. Yep. No, you can you can see that and also see what's hard and challenging. And um, so I'm wondering if this may relate to another question that we have here is from somebody who said, I, I don't understand how anxiety is inauthenticity. As someone who has been anxious since I was a kid and I feel that anxiety is a big part of my authentic self, I found anxiety, oh, sorry, I'm trying to scroll down. Anxiety uh, is a big part of my authentic self that has always helped creativity and professional success up to a point. But if the anxiety spirals too high, I get paralyzed. Do you ever feel like anxiety is something that needs to be titrated enough to feed creativity, but not so much? that it tips into depression and becoming paralyzed?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's the one I was sort of trying to answer before, which was basically, hey, there are some like pathological part, you know, parts of anxiety that are just part of who we are. And they're definitely not inauthentic. Um, And I think, you know, I coined a word which is exilifying, which is basically uh, that combination of being, or exilified of being exhilarated and terrified. And I think, you know, that's how we should live our lives. And that the terrified has a lot of anxiety in it. And I feel like if I'm doing anything and it's, there's no anxiety in it, I'm not pushing myself, right? I mean, anything you do that has an unknown is going to have some anxiety. And yes, is that anxiety positive? Absolutely. As long as you do it. Right, and and it doesn't become paralyzing. So I think it's all about getting out of our head and moving into our heart. And I mean, every time I do one of these, you know, events, I mean, it's exzilifying because hey, I'm doing them off the cuff. I don't have notes, so I could, you know, I could freeze and like, and and it could be a disaster. Um, But I try to just I take my tea, which is warm, and it's one of my grounding things. And I just hold on to my tea, and I'm like, here goes. And I jump into the abyss, you know? And I think I've had ones work. I've had ones not work. I've had um, lots of weird things happen in them. Um, I've had people attack me in some of them. Like, you just never know what's going to happen. And I chalk it all up to that full spectrum of living. And I think when you, you say anxiety is part of who I am and it's part of who I am too, you um, and I'm going to accept it as part of who I am, and I'm going to live my life despite it. And I'm going to continue jumping into the abyss every day, even though it's exilifying. Because um, it's always, there's a bit of exhilaration in the unknown, but there's also terror. So, you know, it's, that, it's that, um, that fine line. And I think if the terror exceeds the exhilaration, and you find yourself utterly paralyzed, and you can't do anything then I think, you know, that's time to go see a professional, because you want to be able to make the most of your life. But if it's always that balance, and you're able to still engage with the anxiety, then it becomes fuel. As you said, it can be, it can be good fuel for, um, for creativity or anything you want to do. So I'm not an expert. I don't know if that answered it.
0: Yeah, I think you gave your, your personal experience and what has worked for you.
1: So yeah, for sure. Question about role of nutrition, exercise, sleep, and any other outside factors that you think play a role as well? My gosh, so
2: energy is the first part of my practice, and it's the most important part. And I've realized now, uh, because I denied my physiological needs for so many years, I really starved myself as punishment for not being perfect. And when you deny your physiological needs, whether it is nourishment, whether it's movement, whether it's rest, you are unable to do anything else in your life. When you deny a physiological need, you become obsessed with filling it. And in those years when I denied myself food, I thought about food 24 seven. I even dreamed about food. Like I was my least creative in my entire life. So that is the, it's the rock on which all the other parts of the practice um, stand on. So yes, it's so important and we don't think about it. Uh, I just had a workshop on it today on, on our own you know platform, uh, which was free, of course. But it was talking about uh, physical energy. And there are four types of energy we need to fill. We have physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual. So they're all really important to be able to do anything else in life. So uh, I've had to work really hard to care for myself because one of my other negative mind stories was self-care is selfish. And anything... Uh, I do that's indulgent is, is like, is unacceptable. So I've had to change my mind story and learn to, um, you know, treat myself with kindness. I had a question.
1: Yeah, first of all, thank you. You did a great job. And I know I'm I'm hogging, but you said something, super many things interesting. You talked about role models being unobtainable, and yet you're a great role model.
2: Mm, Sweet.
1: So we'd like to think that you, your path is an obtainable path. We can learn from your experience. Simone Biles is a great role model. So can you talk a little bit about having appropriate role models and isn't it important to have the hope that, oh, we can be like Melissa. We can shout that book and story out. And that is obtainable.
2: Yes, I think that's, oh, that's awesome. Thank you. And I think the issue with role models is it's very black or white, you know, we, we don't, we, we might say we had an issue, right? But we're better now, we might say like, that was a problem back then, I feel like not many people believe that you can have a mental affliction or some condition and still live a bountiful life and be a leader and be successful. So I don't think we have enough folks saying I have existential depression and am, you know, a leader of a company. Uh, I am existentially depressed and I have six children. And I think that's the message that we need to give more, that we are still functioning people who have a lot to give. And actually, you know, my condition is probably a a must for my role, which is a creative. Like, I don't think I if I weren't existentially depressed, I probably couldn't create the way I create because it's like these heightened sensitivities. So um, for me, it's part and parcel of what I'm here to do. Uh, So I think more folks need to come out, you know, Jeanette and I were talking about it at the corporate level, you know, maybe it's starting but I'm talking like barely a trickle like CEO CEOs, the C level suite of corporations. Like very few are coming out and saying, hi, I have severe depression and I'm leading." You know, hi, I, uh, you know, I attempted to end my life three times and I'm still here. And I'm, look what I did, I, I led. Like that's what people need to hear. They need to hear that people who've reached high levels have had lots of ups and downs and still do. Because in the American dream, it's like, I had all the ups and downs and look where I am now. Like, I'm alone up here with nothing bothering me. It's like, no, that's not true. It's become, it's the light and the dark together. So I think we need more people saying the light and the dark exist every single day, but it's not stopping me from realizing my dreams. And that's what I'm trying to say. Um, And I think the best message I can give young people is life is hard. You're going to have a lot of ups and downs. But if you can see all your your curses as blessings and believe that you do have a special superpower that, that longs to come out, and if you can get it out there, you will um, find meaning, you know, that gives you, that gives you the hope. And it doesn't matter if you have some challenges along the way, we all do. And if you don't, then something is wrong or you're just denying it.
1: Great. You know, one thing that I really loved about, you know, your book, lifelines that brought in a theme that I think is really important that I think enough people don't get enough these days is the power of nature Mm. um, and how grounding that can be. Can you Mm. comment a little on that?
2: Oh my gosh. Nature is like everything to me because it teaches me all the lessons I need to learn so badly, which is acceptance of the inevitable. You know, I am so in awe when I look at a tree and trees are my, um, I call it my hearthstone. You know, I I envision myself as a tree Um, and I just love the way trees bear through all the seasons, you know, and their leaves die and they're so forlorn like in the winter, but they don't, they don't bow their heads in shame. They just sit there with their arms outstretched naked and like go through the winter, like pretty much unfazed. And then they're beautiful in the spring and they're birds making nests and they're pretty much doing the same thing. And I feel like nature teaches me so many lessons that I need to learn myself. So I try to spend as much time as I can in nature and it grounds me. It it, it takes all my senses and really um, intoxicates them in an incredible way. So. Um, I I feel like I am the wind and I am the ocean and I am the bird in the tree, and it's just an incredibly blissful place. So um, I think any of you who are creative folks, like you'll find even a a heightened um, connection to nature.
1: And when you're out in nature, it's so hard to stay in your head because you just can't. It comes, it takes you out with unexpected things. And it
2: teaches you acceptance of all the seasons of life, which is like, as someone who has existential anxiety and questions, you know, the meaning, like you just see this, this connection to with everything and sort of the seamless way, which the waves come and go and it just continues on and on and you feel, I feel a part of something even bigger. And I, and I, I sort of find my insignificance actually comforting because I sort of feel like it will continue on and I'll sort of be some little part of it somewhere.
0: There was a question about whether you have a spiritual practice.
2: That's a great question. Um, I do, and it's not religious, but it's, you know, it's spiritual. And I think spiritual for me is the question, like, why am I here? What is life meaning, life's meaning? and i ponder that continually i'm always talking to gurus i do a lot of soul searching i do a lot of reading uh i have a you know yogi who i go to and i do a lot of meditation and i'm always trying to um remain unattached and sort of Go get into that practice of detaching from the materialism, from all the things that don't matter, and and grounding more in my my heart. So it's uh it's continual, and I love talking with those who are on that same path. It's so much fun.
1: Right. Uh, one final question, I think, is combating loneliness is something that you know we as a society are really likely to need to focus on you know, so many people are lonely in a full room and it's getting worse with the pandemic and the isolation that we've had. How do you think we can break that uh, feeling and and kind of reconnect people?
2: Mm. I just read, I pre-read the most incredible book on loneliness um, by two gentlemen and it's coming out in the fall and it was about this epidemic of loneliness in the workplace. Oh, it was so beautiful and it talks about, you know, our biological need for connection and how intrinsic it is and how this on demand society, even before COVID, like every point at which you would touch a person is now being taken away from us. Right, everything's being delivered and left on your doorstep, you know, even and he talks about like the ATM on from the ATM we were going downhill when it came to human connection. Um, so I think it's going to become part of a deliberate practice. It has to become an intentional part of your day. And we taught, we're going to talk about it in the end of our practice and engagement, like that idea that you're going to have to set aside time. I'm going to call two friends. I'm going to ask my friend to walk with me tomorrow. It's harder than ever. And I think without making it, a deliberate practice, we can really start to go into ourselves and our and our cocoons, and I think they were saying corporate leaders have the responsibility to reach out to people. And I finished the book; it's really interesting, and it moved me so much that we have two folks in China who are working for Lifelines, our new our new venture, and I immediately reached out to one of them and I said, um, "Let's talk," because I really was like, oh my gosh, I am shirking my responsibility, like as a leader, to I need to be connecting with these folks like on a regular basis because they could easily sort of fall into this isolation. So it's just gonna have to become more deliberate. And you know, I too, because I'm an introvert and I get my energy from kind of within, I I could easily go months without seeing anyone. Although I live with six children, so I'm I'm seeing people, but without like friends um, And, you know, I, I tend to sort of get into the point where I'm like, ah, whatever, I don't need to call that person. But whenever I do, and I go for like a walk with someone who I really enjoy, I leave the meeting and I have like 20 more product ideas. I have all these dots that have connected. I feel like so nourished and I'm like, oh, I need to do that more often. So I just think if we realize that this need is biological and without it, we will fall into despair by definition, we will have to make it part of a deliberate practice. I don't know if that answers that, I hope so. Oh, yeah.
1: no, that's great, thanks.
2: Right, so I think we are having to
0: wrap up here because I can't believe it's already been an hour. Um, so Melissa, I just wanted to give you an opportunity if, you, if there's any, sort of last thing that you wanna share. I do have um, some slides also. I wanna share the information about lifelines and ways that people can find out more about that, but I'll wait until you have your last words.
2: Sure, I mean, I think I would say that it can be terrifying when you're feeling a lot of anxiety and depression and you feel like you're stuck and you can't get out. But I guess, you know, I want you to know that you're not alone. I mean, so many others, if not everybody has been where you've been at some point and there is hope and I promise, and you know, you're welcome. Our community is entirely free. We do workshops every week. You're welcome to come join us. It's a really warm community. We have a Facebook group. It's called lifelines.com. So you're welcome to join us, but know that there are many others, you know, feeling like you are. It's totally, uh, normal and acceptable to be that way that is part of life and know that you do if you take the time and get out of your head and into your heart and just listen for that authentic voice it's in there and at some point like it will come out and you will find kind of that purpose and and why you're here and uh we also have a free you know journey on the website it's the same journey that I took like we're not selling anything it's really just for me to offer the journey I took, that could get you to maybe start to think about who I am and what I want to do, and and you know how do I want to find my meaning? Uh, if that can help you, that would be wonderful. So um, so so keep 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 fighting, you know, keep fighting to to find that meaning. It's there.
1: Every night some rain must fall You're learning to-